bed and started getting ready. Even though it was me who was in a lot of trouble, I couldn't help but feel sorry for Jerry. I mean, not only because he was going to have to live around three girls, but also because being six is a real rough age to be at. Most folks think you start to be a real adult when you're 15 or 16 years old, but that's not true. It really starts when you're around six. It's at six that grown folks don't think you're a cute little kid anymore. They talk to you and expect that you understand everything they mean. And you'd best understand, too, if you aren't looking for some real trouble. Because it's around six that grown folks stop giving you little swats and taps and jump clean up to giving you slugs that'll knock you right down and have you seeing stars in the middle of the day. The first foster home I was in taught me that real quick. Six is a bad time, too, because that's when some real scary things start to happen to your body. It's around then that your teeth start coming loose in your mouth. You wake up one morning, and it seems like your tongue is the first one to notice that something strange is going on. Because as soon as you get up, there it is, pushing and rubbing up against one of your front teeth, and I'll be doggone if that tooth isn't the littlest bit wiggly. Now, at first you think it's kind of funny. But the tooth keeps getting looser and looser, and one day, in the middle of pushing the tooth back and forth and squinching your eyes shut, you pull it clean out. It's the scariest thing you can think of, because you lose control of your tongue at the same time, and no matter how hard you try to stop it, it won't leave the new hole in your mouth alone. It keeps digging around in the spot where that tooth used to be. You tell some adult about what's happening, but all they do is say, it's normal. Well, you can't be too sure, though, because it shakes you up a whole lot more than grown folks think it does when perfectly good parts of your body commence to loosening up and falling off of you. Unless you're as stupid as a lamppost, you've got to wonder what's coming off next. Your arm? Your leg? Your neck? Every morning when you wake up, it seems a lot of your parts aren't stuck on as good as they used to be. Six is real tough. That's how old I was when I came to live here in the home. That's how old I was when Mama died. I folded the blanket and sheet and set them back on the mattress. Then I reached under the bed to get my suitcase. Now, most of the kids in the home keep their things in a paper or cloth sack, but not me. I have my own suitcase. I set it on the mattress and untied the twine that held it together. I did what I do every night before I go to sleep. I checked to make sure everything was there. The way there are more and more kids coming into the home every day, I had to make sure no one had run off with any of my things. First, I pulled my blanket out and saw that everything was where it was supposed to be. At the bottom of my suitcase were the flyers. I took the blue flyer out and looked at it again. The paper was starting to wear out from me looking at it so much, but I liked checking to see if there was anything I hadn't noticed before. It was like something was telling me there was a message from me on this flyer, but I didn't have the decoder ring to read what it was. Across the top of the flyer, written in big black letters, were the words limited engagement. Then in little letters, it said, direct from an SRO engagement in New York City. Underneath that, in big letters again, it said, Herman E. Calloway and the dusky devastators of the Depression. Those six exclamation points made it seem like this was the most important news anyone could think of. 
Seems like you'd have to be really great to deserve all those exclamation points, all stacked up in a row like that. Next, the paper said, Masters of the New Jazz. Then, in the middle of the flyer, was a blurry picture of the man I have a real good suspicion about. Now, I I've never met him, but I have a pretty good feeling that this guy must be my father. In the picture, he's standing next to a giant fiddle that's taller than him. It looks like it's real heavy, because he's leaning up against it trying to hold it up. He looks like he's been doing this for a long time, and he must be tired because he has a droopy, dreamy look on his face. There are two men beside him, one playing drums and the other one blowing a horn. It wasn't hard to see what the guy who must be my father was like just by looking at his picture. You could tell he was a real quiet, real friendly and smart man. He had one of those kind of faces. Underneath the picture, someone had writ with a black fountain pen, One night only in Flint, Michigan, at the luxurious Fifty Grand, on Saturday, June 16, 1932, 9 until, question mark. I remember Mama bringing this flyer with her when she came from working one day. I remember because she got very upset when she put it on the supper table and kept looking at it and picking it up and putting it back and moving it around. I was only six then and couldn't understand why this one got her so upset. She kept four others that were a lot like it in her dressing table, but this one really got her jumpy. The only difference I could see between the blue one and the others was that the others didn't say anything about Flint on them. I remember this blue one, too, because it wasn't too long after she brought it home that I knocked on Mama's bedroom door, then found her. I put the blue flyer back in the suitcase with the four older ones and put everything back in its place. I went over to the big chest of drawers and took my other set of clothes out and put them in the suitcase, too. I tied the twine back around my bag, then went and sat on Jerry's bed with him. And Jerry must have been thinking just as hard as I was, because neither one of us said nothing. We just sat close enough so that our shoulders were touching. Here we go again. Chapter 2 There comes a time when you're losing a fight that it just doesn't make sense to keep on fighting. It's not that you're being a quitter. It's just that you've got the sense to know when enough is enough. I was having this thought because Todd Amos was hitting me so hard and fast that I knew that the blood squirting out of my nose was only the beginning of a whole long list of bad things that were about to happen to me. Todd's next punch crashed into the side of my ear, and I fell on the floor and pulled my knees up to my chest and crossed my arms in front of my head like a turtle in a shell. I started scooching toward the bed, hoping I could get under it. Todd started kicking me, but his slippers couldn't hurt me near as much as his fists had. The bedroom door opened and his mother, Mrs. Amos, came in. It seemed like she was having a hard time figuring out what was going on because Todd's right leg got tired from kicking me and he switched over to his left one while she watched. Finally, Mrs. Amos said kind of soft, Toddy? Todd looked up, fell on his knees, and put his hands on his throat. He started huffing and puffing, with his eyes bucking out of his head and his chest going up and down so hard that it looked like some kind of big animal was inside of him, trying to bust out. This was my chance to get under the bed and pull the covers down so they couldn't see me. Mrs. Amos ran over to her son and fell on her knees. She put her arms around his shoulders. 
Toddy, Toddy boy, are you all right? She looked over to where I was peeking from under the bed. You little cur, what have you done to Toddy? Todd coughed out. <coughs> oh, mother, he took in two jumbo breaths. I was only trying to help. He was sounding like a horse that had been run too hard in the winter. And, and look what it's gotten me. Todd pointed at his jaw, and Mrs. Amos and me could both see a perfect print in the shape of my hand welted up on Todd's blubbery cheek. With one quick snatch, she had me from under the bed and out on the floor, laying down next to Todd. How dare you? This is how you choose to repay me? Not only have you struck him, you have provoked his asthma. Todd said, I just tried to waken him to make sure he'd gone to the lavatory, Mother. I was just trying to help. He aimed his finger dead at me and said, And look at him, Mother. This one's got bedwetter written all over him. I'm not bragging when I say that I'm one of the best liars in the world, but I got to tell you, Todd was pretty doggone good. It seemed like he knew some of the same things I know, the things that I think of all the time and try to remember so I don't make the same mistake more than seven or eight times. Shucks. I've got so many of them rememorized that I had to give them numbers, and it seemed like Todd knew number three of Bud Caldwell's rules and things for having a funner life and making a better liar out of yourself. Rules and things number three. If you've got to tell a lie, make sure it's simple and easy to remember. Todd had done that. But this wasn't really a good test, because Mrs. Amos had her ears set to believe anything Todd said. In her eyes, Todd's mouth was a prayer book. But I can't blame Todd for lying like that. Having someone who likes you so much that they think everything you say is the truth has got to be a liar's paradise. That might feel so good, it could make you want to quit lying. But maybe not, because Todd hadn't quit lying since the second I came to his house. What had really happened was that I woke up from a good sleep because it felt like a steam locomotive had jumped the tracks and chug-chug-chugged its way straight into my nose. When I jerked up in bed and opened my eyes, Todd was standing next to me with a yellow pencil in his hand. He was looking at it like it was a thermometer and said, Wow, you got all the way up to R. He turned the pencil toward me, crunched up against the headboard. I saw Ticonderoga printed on the yellow wood. The whole room smelled like the rubber from the eraser, and I was winking and blinking my left eye because it felt like something had poked the back of my eyeball. Todd laughed. I've never gotten it in as deep as the inn on any of you other little street urchins. <laughs> I just might enjoy your stay here. Who knows what other things you could be number one in, buddy? I'd already told him twice that my name was Bud, not Buddy. I didn't care that Todd Amos was twelve years old. I didn't care that he was twice as big as me, and I didn't care that his mother was being paid to take care of me. I wasn't about to let anybody call me Buddy and stick a pencil up my nose all the way to the R. I swung as hard as I could at Todd's big balloon head. Somewhere between the time I threw my punch and the time it landed, my fist came open, and when my hand landed, it made a pop like a twenty-two rifle going off. Todd fell on the floor like he'd been coal-cocked.
He sputtered and muttered and felt the spot where I'd slapped him. Then a big smile came on his face, and he stood up and started walking real slow toward where I was on the bed. He untied his robe and dropped it on the floor like he was getting ready to do some hard work. I jumped to the floor and got my fists up. Todd might have been a lot bigger than me, but he'd better be ready. This wasn't going to be a bird's nest sitting on the ground for him. He could kiss my wrist if he thought I was going to let him whip me up without a good fight. Being this brave was kind of stupid. Even though Todd was a puffy, rich old mama's boy who wore a robe and slippers he could hit like a mule, and it wasn't too long before I decided enough was enough. But the story that Mrs. Amos was hearing from her lying son was only that Todd had tried to wake me up so I could go to the bathroom. Mrs. Amos hated bedwetters more than anything in the world, and my bed had a sticky, hot, smelly rubber baby sheet on it. She said it wasn't anything personal, and after I had proved myself for two or three months, I could get a proper cloth sheet. But until then, she had to protect her mattress. She pulled Todd to his feet and led him to the door. She looked over at me. You are a beastly little brute, and I will not tolerate even one night with you under my roof. Who knows what you would be capable of while we slept? The door shut behind them, and I heard a key jiggle in the lock. I plugged the right side of my nose and tried real hard to blow the smell of rubber out of the left side. The key jiggled in the lock again. This time, when the door opened, Mr. Amos was standing with Mrs. Amos. He was carrying my suitcase. Uh-oh. They'd looked inside. I could tell, because the twine that held it together was tied in a kind of knot that I didn't know. This was wrong. They promised they'd keep it safe and not look in it. They'd laughed at me when I made them promise, but they did promise. Boy, Mrs. Amos said, I am not the least bit surprised at your show of ingratitude. Lord knows I have been stung by my own people before. But take a good look at me, because I am one person who is totally fed up with you and your ilk. I do not have time to put up with the foolishness of those members of our race who do not want to be uplifted. In the morning, I'll be getting in touch with the home, and much as a bad penny, you shall be returning to them. I am a woman of my word, though. And you shall not spend one night in my house. She looked at her husband. Mr. Amos will show you to the shed tonight, and you can come back in tomorrow for breakfast before you go. I do hope your conscience plagues you, because you may have ruined things for many others. I do not know if I shall ever be able to help another child in need. I do know I shall not allow vermin to attack my poor baby in his own house. She talked like this, and she wasn't even a preacher or a teacher. Shut, she talked strange like this, and she wasn't even a librarian. I only halfway listened to what Mrs. Amos was saying. I was too busy.